Hey there, everybody. This is Modified, coming to you from sunny San Antonio, Texas. Today we have Mr. Marcos Hernandez. Howdy. I don't know why I introduced myself first. And hey, Jess, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm coming at you from sunny Seattle. There, that's that's bullshit. That's a lie. No, why would it's you lie really, to people like that? It is really <laughs> sunny here today. It's unseasonably sunny. It has okay, been for well, the past week. My plants are doing great. <laughs> if you say it's unseasonably sunny, I'll take your word for it. But uh, what are we talking about today, Jess? So today, this episode is going to be a little bit different. Our topic is about things that people with a penis experience. So, Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today we're talking about circumcision. The, mo- the routine practice of male circumcision. Should it be routine? Question mark. Listen more to find out. Should it be routine? Have you ever questioned it? <clears throat> have you ever thought about it? I mean, it? I certainly have. Have you? Yeah, I um so my first experience hearing the word circumcision <clears throat> was I went to the I went to my pediatrician at like the age of 9 or something. You know, I was pretty young. And you know, being that young, you you don't really know a whole lot about the world. You know, your vocabulary isn't the biggest. So the doctor, I I think his name was Dr. Ferreras, something like that. Really short guy. I'm nine years old. He only stood about four inches taller than me. Um, he looks me dead in the eye and he asks me, son, are you circumcised? And <laughs> he, <laughs> he asked a know, nine-year-old that? Yeah. My, you know, my mom's in the room. She's staying right there next to me. He's, uh, doing some kind of exam on me. He had to like grab my nuts and feel them for lumps or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it was all above table or above board. <laughs> and then he asks me, are you circumcised? And I just freeze. And I'm like thinking like, what does that mean? And I kind of look at him I with a blank exercise? face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just didn't know what it meant. So I, I'm looking at him with a blank face and I kind of look at him, look at my mom. And my mom goes, yeah, he's circumcised. And I, I like look back at him and he's like, oh, that means you don't have like a foreskin. Well, I've been circumcised since I was born. I've never seen my penis with a foreskin. So I'm like, what do you mean foreskin? He like explains it to me. Well, everybody, you know, is born with like a hood around the end of their, and he, he's using like the technical terms of the, uh, they're born with a hood at the end of their penis. Well, long story short, he explains to me what all this is. And then I go home that night and I look at my penis. And for the first time ever, I noticed that, yeah, there's this scar around the end of it there's like i have a two-tone penis where there's a a light side and a dark side (laughs) and the scar demarcates where the dark side is (laughs) like it it, it demarcates the transition between the two i'm like oh my god i thought every i I thought this was just like how it looked i thought this everyone's looked like this like to a certain extent yeah everyone's does look like that well not everyone's not those in america mostly (laughs) but yeah so do you feel do you feel robbed of your foreskin how do you feel about being circumcised uh, without <sighs> I don't know. I I don't feel like I've been robbed of anything because it's you know I've never I've never known having a foreskin, so I don't have anything to compare it to. It's like right. do I do I feel robbed of twenty twenty vision because I wear glasses my whole life? Like not really. And yeah, I feel but the I same mean, way about my foreskin. No, nobody took your vision away. Like, how how do you feel that God took my vision away? <laughs> How do you feel that there was a surgical procedure done on you without your consent, that that decision was made for you to to modify your 
body the way it naturally was. Like, does that bother you at all that that was done? Or I genuinely believe my parents made a decision for me that they thought would be the best thing for me. Yeah. No, I, I'm not saying and that your parents had ill intent. No, I know, I know what you're makes... saying, but I'm saying that's what I feel about yeah. it. Like, yeah. I don't have, I just don't really have much of an opinion on not having a foreskin because I've just never known it. So I, yeah. it's just. You don't know I'm, what it feels like, but do you, the, you don't wonder at all what, what it would feel like to have a foreskin and like, you don't know. Oh, I've certainly wondered. Yeah. yeah. I've like, you know, I, I have one friend in particular that has a foreskin and he's an utter fuck boy. So he's just talking <laughs> about like, oh yeah, dude, bareback feels so good. This and that. And I'm like, well, I do sort of, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I like love to trap new experiences and, you know, try new things. So it's like, I would love to know the feeling of having sex with a foreskin. But beyond that, I don't. You know, beyond beyond that, like, petty gripe, I guess, I don't really care either way. You don't think about it too much. It doesn't really take yeah. up much of your mind space. I, I I think more about just the sheer act of fucking than fucking with a foreskin. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, yeah. I, my mind is in one place right now, so. Uh, the, for, the foreskin is, like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is a common, very common, very routine procedure that's done on neonates, on newborns. May it, Within like the first few days after birth, they routinely get circumcised in America. It's not that common of a thing in many other countries. I mean, outside of certain religions, like uh, Jewish people circumcise their babies, Muslims, that's part of Muslim tradition as well. Um, but outside Some of sub Saharan African countries, do it too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of, there are a lot of cultures and a lot of religions that do it and there's but there's also a lot of countries that do not like there are a lot of european countries that do not uh so do do you just have any notions as to why we do circum like what what in your mind is the purpose of circumcision as it's been explained to me by doctors and my parents they 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 were telling them that or they say that it's for like uh reproductive health you know like air quotes you don't want to get they they're trying to avoid like getting smegma and you know all sorts of other things that can come with having a foreskin allegedly i don't know Mm -hmm. but it's all very Um, vague right (laughs) yeah they just tell you like oh there's these nebulous health benefits it's almost it's almost like um like an infomercial for like some kind of like health supplement where they just say it's going to do all these things for you uh by not having it you know if having a foreskin can cause like irritation and inflammation and infection and you know, this and that and the other. And it's like, well, I mean, does it though? Like I don't hear about Europeans constantly complaining about their inflamed foreskins. Right. It's like, there's so many places that do not circumcise. You think that these places would have a bunch of people suffering from these (laughs) so-called inflamed foreskin. Yes. Yeah. The thing I think I always heard, and I have to admit, I've never really thought about circumcision deeply or critically. I I think this is a topic I wanted to do because it's something, I, just, I think it's something that's so routinely done, um, but kind of like body hair, I don't think many of us really think about it. It's just, I, I don't think a lot of parents think deeply about it before they circumcise their sons. They make that, like you said, quick decision under pressure, kind of probably as, as soon as they give birth to their baby they get asked if they want them circumcised. And it's like, I don't know, it's so chaotic probably when you're giving birth anyways. You're probably like, whatever, yeah, just do whatever. Do whatever you think is best. Oh, yeah. So, like, like if, if you're doing if, a natural birth, you know, just to just to kind of like put put us in the mindset of it, like if you're doing a natural birth, the mother's got to be in an intense amount of pain and 
hardly aware enough to make like a real informed decision mm -hmm. and so like you pass that you probably pass that decision on to the father and it's like oh well i'm circumcised and i'm i'm fine like i guess i'll just get my baby circumcised and i'm sure there's a lot of pressure from the doctor like tut tutting you like you should do it or this could happen and that a lot of like that pressure scares a lot of parents yeah i think okay. so i think they're afraid not to just because so many people in our culture are circumcised so they're like you know, you don't, you don't want to go against the grain if it's going to hard, harm your child. But then again, it's like you're also uh, making the decision to do sur surgical intervention on your child as a preventative measure. And mm. it's and it's the question of what is it really preventing and is it necessary? Is the surgical intervention necessary as a preventative measure? And I think the thing that I often heard is like the thing that comes to my mind as for reasoning is like, oh, well, it's, it's, it's easier to keep clean if there's not a foreskin. I, I think that's something that I've heard a lot. And I'm like, that seems like a weird reason to just cut off a part of your body. <laughs> yeah. For hygiene. <laughs> for hygiene. Like, I think that's the big one. The big reason that keeps coming up where it's like, oh, well, like having a foreskin, is just harder to clean. And if you don't want to get infection, then like, you might as well just cut off that part. And it's like, I don't know what else. I I don't even think that there is another um thing that I like could, another equivalent equivalent. Procedure. Yeah, I don't think I, there's not one I could think of where we just do a surgery to pre prevent something that seems so minor. Like in in my mind, it seems like maybe it does prevent some things, but those things don't necessarily seem that severe. But then again, the surgery <clears throat> of circumcision also is very low risk. So it's like you're doing a low risk procedure to reduce maybe a low risk disease you know like <laughs> it, I, the only thing in my mind i could like equate to and this doesn't exist it's like it would be like saying oh we're going to remove your toenails at birth to prevent ingrown toenails later in the future mm -hmm. yeah you know it's like okay that like sort of makes sense but it, like in ingrown toenails yes while they are a pain when they happen they're not so bad that it's like, well, we should just remove it at birth. You know, like we should just get rid of the toenails and like you have to come in every, I don't know, three or four years for toenail removal. Right. You know, like that's that just doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like there's a cost benefit there that makes sense. And the same thing with uh, foreskins where we, you know, as a society are sort of like forcing these procedures on babies because that's the norm in our society and however that started i don't know but i'm sure you'll you know i'm sure you'll be able to tell us oh, we'll how get it into started it. yeah and I, I think the thing that bothers me most about this procedure is that it is done on babies who can't consent to it and it's permanent it's irreversible it's an it's an error even even if it's not a high-risk surgical procedure and even if maybe it doesn't make that much of a difference in quality of life or whatever uh, it's still, it's still a surgical and irreversible body modification that is done non-consensually. And that, that alone at its core bothers me a little bit. Like, I think if you want to be circumcised, great. If you don't, great. But I think it should be a choice of the individual and it shouldn't just be done, uh, as a newborn. And I don't know. I, I think it's very weird that that, that this is routinely done. Uh, I'm just going to say my gut feeling is that this this comes out of like some kind of misguided 19th, 18th century like mm -hmm. health push from doctors like, oh, well, you know, 
it's we we believe that it, it's you know like i said it has all these benefits and the downsides are minimal you know the and you know from what i've heard the sex is better with a foreskin you know you're more sensitive mm-hmm. and what did the eight the what did the people in the, of the 18th and 19th century hate it was sex, sex. exactly cornflakes were, were invented to lower men's <laughs> libidos uh insane I, asylums would you know typically chemically castrate their patients and force chastity belts on them like Oh, don't Humans worry. really hated sex for the last 200 years, which is just fucking insane. We're going to talk about some masturbation coming up. All right, so do you want to get into it? Let's get into it, baby. All right, Let's dive b- on in. Before I do, though, I have a small disclaimer. Mm-hmm. I am not a healthcare professional, nor am I a professional researcher, and nothing that I say in this podcast today should be taken as medical advice. Also, we do these, not give financial advice. These are just my opinions based on some sources that I read. And uh, yeah, I don't want to be like spreading medical <laughs> misinformation. So these are my opinions, not medical advice. Just had to just, put it out okay. there. You, you, can't have, you can't do more damage than Donald Trump's <laughs> done to this country. So let's just dive on in. All right, let's dive on in. So, okay. So I came across an article called Why is Circumcision So Popular in the U.S. by Emily Bobro. This is a 2017 article. And um, apparently, neo. I'm just going to read out a few facts about circumcision before we kind of dive into the history and how we Mm. got to where we are today. And and this is going to be kind of like circumcision in the U.S. is what I'm covering. So, but it's, this has been one of the most circumcision, neonatal circumcision. So circumcision right after birth has been the most common surgery in America for over a century. Six out of 10 newborns in America get the procedure. This is an interesting little fact. 90% of American texts, illustrations in American medical texts, feature penises. Wait, sorry, hold on. One study of 90. (laughs) Feature penis? There was a study done of 90 American medical texts. And in those texts, one third featured illustrations of a penis with a foreskin. Huh. Less than, sorry. I completely, I completely misread that. (laughs) There was a study of 90 American medical texts and less than one third featured images of a penis with a foreskin. So most of the penises in medical texts show it circumcised. So, uh, in, in other places, so it's very common in America, but it's over, over the night in the 1900s, it has declined in Australia, Canada, Britain, and New Zealand and New Zealand. Um, fewer than one fifth of all male European men are circumcised. Uh, do we, do we have any reason as to why there's been the decline? Is it popular opinion, changing professional opinion? I, I don't, I don't know for certain. Uh, I do know a little bit, and obviously there are many different countries in Europe, but I know in the UK it declined after World War II because of their nationalized healthcare system, and they really tried to streamline the procedures that were deemed important. And at that time, they they decided that circumcision was not that important and didn't need to be part of routine healthcare, and that it was just kind of like excessive and unnecessary. Um, so that that is a point to bring up is that in the U.S., maybe I mean, do we do we do this because? 
we have to pay for every procedure. It's very different than a European healthcare model. So maybe this is just one more item in the hospital your doctor can tack onto your bill and get extra money for. I mean, that we, realistically, that might be <laughs> one of the reasons it still remains in the U.S., you know. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. We we have like a very a la carte health system. Like you want it, you got it. You have to pay for it, though. Like if you and, think about it. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and you know. Obviously, within a, like when you have a nationalized healthcare system, you 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 don't have a variety of choice. You just kind of get what you get, and so I I I, I see the logic, but yeah. that, that to me that's a that that like is a huge red flag. It's like, well, why if they decided it's unnecessary because the it just it's not required by the wider populace, then why why is it still being recommended by uh, doctors in the U.S.? Why is this like? the number one medical procedure in the United States. Well, we'll get into some of that. But yeah, I do. I so many questions, Jess. I, I demand answers. I, I do think a, a part of it is because it is one more procedure that physicians can charge for. I, I think that is a small part of it, or maybe even a large part of it is, it, you know, in the UK where the government is paying for it, they're not going to pay for something that's unnecessary, but doc. I don't think physicians here mind <laughs> recommending procedures. Well, the the that, incentives are different. Yeah, the incentives are completely different. So, I mean, that is something to keep in mind. So, in Germany, in 2012, a district judge ruled <clears throat> that ritual circumcision of juveniles is a crime that violates the fundamental right of child and bodily integrity. <laughs> Damn, Germany. Yeah. Germany. Is that is that like like low key anti Semitic though? Like oh. the circumcision <laughs> rituals violate like oh, that's Germany. A good point. That's not a good look. Maybe well, maybe yeah. you shouldn't have taken that bold stance. Right. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't have uh, yeah focused on circumcision so specifically. <laughs> South Korea is the only Asian country that embraces the procedure. Uh, and in the, according to this article, they say it's kind of a, a physiological souvenir of America's occup- occupation of. Korea following World War II, uh, but but and cir- circumcision rates in South Korea are actually declining faster than they are in the U.S. Uh, okay, so the stance of the current stance of the American Academy of Pediatrics is that the risks for the surgical procedure of circumcision outweigh the risks of not getting circumcised, and we'll get into what the ris- those risks are in just a second. I don't want to get into those yet, though. Um, Oh, in, in this in this uh, article, and this article was written in 2017, it did say that the professional charge in the U.S. is somewhere between, for this procedure, for a single circumcision, is between $150 and $200. So if you think about it, it, it uh, a physician does four or five circumcisions in an hour. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's yeah, like, that's, a little, that's a little chunk of change in your pocket yeah. right there. You know, they, I, I imagine like a little, uh, like a little assembly line. They're just like slip a baby under this doctor's knife and he just goes to work, lifts up his hand. They slide in the next baby and he goes back to work. Ugh. And I, it, now that you mention this, it kind of seems almost immoral to do this because there's a profit incentive. It's not a health incentive for the well-being of the child and their future. It's just a profit incentive. Yeah. Because they can charge insurance, insurance get, pays them back, and they get to charge for this. And it's, yeah. it's just another sign of like late stage capitalism, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. That's... Well, there's more. There is, I, I do think that is a reason, but I there's an origin to before, even before we have the healthcare system that we have now. I mean, this cultural embrace of circumcision goes back way farther than 
the 1900s. So let's get into that. Which is weird because it's very Jewish and like, you know, anti-Semitism in the early (laughs) 1900s, you know, before that was, you know, not great. Not great. So in, yeah, let's, let's get into the little, like a little bit of the history of the origin of this procedure in the U.S. and how it became um, a routine procedure. So did it really become um, like a routine procedure done on newborns until the profession of obstetrics rose in like the late 1800s, early 1900s? Uh, I mean, prior to that, women gave birth. Uh, for, those, for those of us who that don't know, what is obst- obstetrics? Obstetrics is the field of medicine that uh, specializes specializes in delivering babies. So, and it's it's kind of the medical model to deliver babies versus how babies used to be delivered, which was inside the home with a midwife, usually. Typically, it was, typically, the process of delivering a baby was handled by midwives uh, until, until, like, obstetrics became a a field, (laughs) basically. um, I guess until we had, like, modern medicine, you mm -hmm. know, like, hospitals and nurses and obstetrics so yeah so until until really the the field of medicine that we recognize today where women gave birth in hospitals i mean circumcision wasn't really routinely done usually midwives would not do it outside of um certain religions doing it it it, either you were able to afford let's just say this it was like a province of the wealthy so you were either able to afford to pay a doctor to circumcise your child or you were were able to afford to have your birth they done. They were burdened with a foreskin. <laughs> well, so so it started off as being something mostly the upper classes did because as as we started to tr- transition away from delivering babies in the home and delivering them instead in the hospitals, um, still that was something maybe only the wealthy people could afford. Not everybody could afford to deliver their baby in a hospital or afford to have their baby delivered by a physician. So it kind of, it it kind of became having your baby circumcised became a marker of class. And, uh, we, it, it reminds me of, um, that whole hygiene movement that we, went over uh i think well, many times we've we've i feel like in every episode this comes up like in the early 1900s as waves of immigrants were coming into the US there was like this whole movement of cleanliness and hygiene and like it, these it, unwashed masses coming yeah. into America are, you know they they're they're bad and circumcision became one of those things during the hygiene movement where it was like oh like if you're not circumcised, you're not clean. You're impure. Like, if you could afford to deliver your baby in a hospital and have them circumcised, um, which a lot of new immigrants obviously couldn't, then then you are uh, in a higher echelon of society, right? Like, um, so that that kind of talking about hygiene, it, it was in the early 1800s. It was kind of about hygiene, but not even about like preventing disease it was more like oh we're clean and pure and you're not you know it's kind it of like sounds a class. like it was just classism yeah yeah it was in the early 1800s it also was thought to be a precaution against masturbation <laughs> <laughs> of so, course <laughs> so um like obviously the victorian era was an era of prudishness and uh they had a lot of issues with sex and yeah it thought it it thought that removing that part of the penis prevented uh excessive stimulation and 
prevented the impulse to masturbate. So that that was a thing in the Victorian era. I don't think that was the main reason for um, circumcision, but that was like definitely an element of it. It was one of those fun little reasons they could tack on to, you know, make it seem like it had all these myriad benefits when really, nah. But really the the main issue, or like in the mid, mid-1800s, late-1800s, it almost, circumcision almost did seem like something that the medical, and this was a time, this was kind of like, so pre-1900s, medicine was still mm-hmm. kind of in the dark ages. It's <laughs> like... The people didn't really know, uh, like the origin of most diseases during this time. Like, uh, do do you do you have any context you can give? Like, is this pre germ theory? Is this pre pasteurization? Um, is this is this like you know in the height of the London or not the London fog? Like uh, the cholera outbreaks in London and miasma theory. Like, do we do we have a time frame for this? That would that would have been before. I don't know when germ theory took hold, but I think this was a time before like people really understood microbes uh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna do a quick google search because i think we should be able to just find this the answer to this question really quick like when was germ theory developed uh germ theory uh discovery (laughs) uh louis pasteur germ theory 1861 okay so okay yeah, pre-World War One, but that's still like that's still quite recent. Only two hundred years ago did we find out about the existence of germs. Well, and even I'm sure it also took a really long time for that theory to take hold. So even though it was discovered mm-hmm. by one guy in 1861, I'm sure it took decades for people to actually believe it. <laughs> yeah, to become accepted and, and yeah, yeah. So really, I think I think when we're talking about like mid 1800s, <clears throat> this is a very medieval time for the field of medicine still like it it was a lot of experimentation and a lot of uh assumptions i i really do think in this time physicians were operating off of into intuition that wasn't necessarily right (laughs) a lot of the time i understand it it seemed like um anything was possible like this was also the time where uh frankenstein was written right and that was based off of uh doctors electrocuting corpses to make them move because we weren't quite sure you know what caused the animus of the human body in the soul exactly and so they were running elect- electricity through these corpses and they seemed to be coming back to life uh and people were kind of you know like oh it was you know is, the, is this is this how we bring people back from the dead or are you know are we approaching a sort of you know tipping point in our in our society or something like that like anything seemed possible these people is the uh the 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 point i'm trying to get across here like they we knew so little about ourselves that anything seemed possible right and and people were i don't know it, it just seems like these physicians were willing to make some pretty sweeping assumptions about things so in the context of circumcision there's the a word that keeps coming up is this thing called it's called phimosis phimosis <laughs> Phimosis. Let me make sure. Okay, explain. <laughs> Let me make sure I'm. See, no, just right. that's your brand. You don't say anything. Phimosis. Right. <laughs> Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. And we can also see what the Webster di- uh, definition is for it. Oh, it's not in the dictionary. What? What? <laughs> a medical dictionary. <laughs> Let me look it up on Google. Are you sure, you're sure you're not looking up some like crackpot word that's like, oh, it's you know the act of negative ions influencing your chakras <laughs> okay according to google phimosis is a condition in which tight foreskin can't 
be pulled back over the head of the piece, the penis. Um, Hmm. So basically it's when a baby is born, the foreskin actually does adhere to the penile gland there. The skin is, is uh, not separated from that yet. And that is very normal. It's actually supposed to be that way until the kid gets a little bit older. And then eventually it naturally uh, disconnects on its own and the foreskin can move up and down like it's supposed to. It blooms. Yeah. So, but that's normal. It's normal for the foreskin to adhere to that, that gland. But in the, in the 18, in the, mid 1800s physicians did not think it was normal they thought it was abnormal and that that they thought that the foreskin had to be surgically peeled back and removed they called this phimosis and they thought that this condition this condition of the foreskin adhering to the penile gland caused all different types of sicknesses they thought it caused madness they thought it caused epilepsy they thought it caused um <laughs> like like hernias. They, they they literally thought that uh, circumcision could cure any type of disease that's found in young people with penises. Like <laughs> it was, it was one of those things in the 1800s where it's like, you know how women, they were like, Oh, you're hysterical. Like, I guess when, when young boys were suffering from certain diseases, a lot, a lot of physicians were like, "Oh, well, we just need to remove your foreskin. Then you'll probably be <laughs> this boy's okay. dick's trapped in a cage. <laughs> you'll no probably, he's crazy. you'll probably be okay if we just remove that foreskin there." <laughs> so, but but got all, a herniated disc? <laughs> remove the foreskin. And a lot of physicians they attested they they claimed that removal of the foreskin could cure all these things, but it was very mm. anecdotal. It wasn't based on any sort of a doctor does it he sees some kind of improvement in the condition of his patient and just assumes cause and effect. I did this and then this happened. They must be linked. So they, there's just this leap of logic, this intuitive logic that like, Oh, that, that makes sense. And they just publish it as fact. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of where it started was that they were like, Oh, this is kind of a, a cure all for all these sorts of diseases. And like, like, a doctor would perform the procedure and they'd be like, oh, well, but little William was suffering from um, bad headaches and, and I removed his foreskin and now he's not. Well, look at that. Like, And they'd be like, this is why, you know, if if a boy's foreskin is adhering to his penis, it must be removed and it'll cure all of his problems. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And then, oh, the, okay. So the second thing that kind of made this procedure rise to prominence was the uh the use of anesthesia became more common so obviously uh cutting off a foreskin probably hurts a lot couldn't tell you (laughs) and (laughs) and you know before oh and so that was the other thing too in the in the 1800s this was not done on neonates it was done on like boys that have probably like early adolescence slash teenage boys so it wasn't done as as they were newborns. They're basically um, trying to do a bris on like a twelve year old. Yeah, so you could imagine that if anesthesia wasn't around, that that would be pretty painful, and a lot of people wouldn't want to go through it, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But as as anesthesia became more widely available, and as medicine itself <clears throat> became cleaner and safer, yeah, so surgery just became more common as those two things came together. You know, obviously, you wouldn't do in a not a not in not necessary procedure before surgeries were safe. Even something like removing a foreskin would be dangerous if there was not proper sterile conditions in place, right? 
nobody would risk their child's life for an unnecessary procedure because the doctor was telling you, oh, well, it'll make his headaches go away in the future. And it's like, well, he could also die right now. So let's let him get out of childhood first and then get the headaches. No, nobody, yeah. you know, especially in that time, child mortality rates are probably quite high. Yeah. Right. So yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't risk that at all unless your son really was suffering from some, some sort of terrible thing. So that's, that seems to be what it was in the 1800s. It was like, well, my child's suffering from headaches slash this, whatever, whatever. Oh, the doctor says that he needs to be circumcised. I guess we'll do it because he's already suffering, but nobody at that time would do it as a preventative measure. It didn't become something people did as a preventative measure until it became much more safe to do surgery. Okay. So let's, let's, um, Let's step back a little bit. It, in the 15, 16, and 1700s, the foreskin actually was seen as a, a beneficial and necessary part of the male anatomy. And it was something that would only be removed if there were problems from the foreskin. It was never, ever done as a preventive procedure. So yeah, so it wasn't until, like the like I said, the 20th century where it started to become common. And, and the reason they, they would remove it is because they thought the adhesion of the foreskin was problematic, which it wasn't, because as a child matured, it would outgrow adhesion. So so that's kind of a weird thing, right? Like the only reason it became so common was they because physicians did not understand how the penis penis matured. <laughs> like they literally did not understand that as a child grows, it naturally the foreskin naturally like loosens and the adhesion problem resolves itself naturally as it's supposed to. I mean, so I, in my head, it's like we have we have ostensibly known that that's what happens to penises for ten thousand years of human history. You know, like there there is there's you know thousands of years of of time where people have bo- been born and gone through this, and you know it's like oh the, the the foreskin won't peel back, and then the baby's like two months old, and then boom, you know it it opens up like a flower and it slides up and down. But for some reason, this is like. This is something new and foreign to, you know, doctors in the 18th century that like they came up with a, a bullshit medical term for it. What was it? Phyresis or uh, something? Ph- and then phimosis. Phimosis. Okay, I was close. Um, and, you know, like how did we, how is this just not like a sort of common cultural knowledge? Like, you know, b- when you have a boy that's born, his you know, foreskin doesn't peel back and you just give it a little bit of time and it's fine. Yeah, I th- I think it's really wild. It's uh, for some reason in the early 1900s, late 1800s, physicians were like, you know what, this has never been a problem before, but now it's a problem. <laughs> Why are all these babies foreskins adhering to their penis? <laughs> like, well, it's so weird to me. I I think it's so crazy. Um, I I'm gonna guess, you know, let's say uh, 1829. Who can afford to become a doctor? Not a peasant, you know, not 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 mm-hmm. a factory worker, not somebody who, you know, is a farmer, works the land or works in a the factory. They have to be someone high up, aristocratic blood, well-bred, as you said earlier. These have to be people who have no experience with this stuff. You know, they're, they, they, they live in an ivory tower and are completely disconnected from the realities of human life and suffering that like they've never they've never seen a baby born until they decided to become a medical professional. Yeah. And now that not you know, then they, then they come up with all these crazy crackpot ideas based on their complete disconnection from the human experience. Yeah. Or, oh, and that's they my would, best guess. and they would point since the Jewish people have been circumcising their babies for centuries. Yeah. Tread carefully on this topic. <laughs> they, that is something that these doctors would point to because uh, there are a lot of low rates of certain 
diseases and they'd be like, well, Jewish men don't suffer from A, B, and C. So like, it has to be because they are circumcised instead of being like, oh, maybe they just have different cultural practices. Like maybe they don't smoke and drink as much, you know, like instead of trying to um, weigh other possibilities for why certain diseases weren't as present in the Jewish population they were just like oh it must be because the men aren't circumcised it's, it's confirmation <laughs> bias it's plainly yeah. confirmation yeah. bias they have they have a presupposed you know thing they believe and they just look for things that they kind of that kind of aligns with that they look for evidence that aligns with their belief yeah so in the in 1960 there was this guy named joffrey jefferson or maybe jeffrey <laughs> jefferson that's what a name right jeffrey jefferson <laughs> it sounds like you're making up a name like someone's asked you what your name is and you have like a finger uh, mustache and you're uh, like i am Je- jeffrey jefferson <laughs> i am uh i am mr jeffrey jefferson a man with a penis what's the character's name in oh bojack, bojack? uh Vin- vincent man yeah something like that vincent manson i don't know it, yeah it's like it's it's like uh he vincent manson works down at the business factory where he does business <laughs> okay so in in the 19 early 1900s this is where we were where the the physicians were oh it's vincent adult man by the adult way man. Vincent yes, adult man. yes vincent adult man yes <laughs> <laughs> um so this is where we were, where these physicians were doing all these circumcisions because they thought this adhesion, this phimosis was a problem. So in 1960, Jeffrey Jefferson, he was a pathologist in uh, in British Columbia. So Canada, right? Yeah, British? Canada. Okay. Uh, he took the time to, to examine 10 foreskins under a microscope. And he... <laughs> <laughs> he took the time. <laughs> he, he wanted to find out more about foreskins because he was seeing all of these foreskins being routinely removed. And he's like, maybe we should actually understand the foreskin better. Have a better understanding of this thing that we're just choosing to take off of all these babies. Um, and he, he was expecting to find mostly like skin tissue, but he was surprised to find actual muscle tissue. And this led him to think that the foreskin probably had more complex muscular connection to the penis than people think. And he concluded that the foreskin is probably a dynamic part of the penis that like develop, continues to develop from infancy to adulthood. It's basically not just like a little skin cap. It has more tissues in it and more muscular tissues and different types of tissues in it. So he wrote, he like, published a text on his findings and it basically was ignored people didn't really care what he had to say well the um, name like jeffrey jefferson they probably just thought it was <laughs> fake like someone's trolling them like yeah sure whatever you say dr jeff and then in in the 1940s there were occasional papers published here and there <laughs> that state that did studies stating that the foreskin did have a complex network of capillaries blood vessels and nerves but it was not until 1949 when a guy named Douglas Gairdner, he was an English pediatrician, he published an article in a British medical journal titled The Fate of Foreskin, A Study in Circumcision. Um, he, he, Gard, Gard, what a catchy title. Gardner um, thought it was weird that this procedure was done so often but received so little scrutiny. And he proposed that before removing a bunch of foreskins from babies, we should probably have a better understanding of the way it matured at each age, and we should weigh the benefits before removing it. Weigh the benefits and the, what's the opposite of benefits? Risks. Risks. (laughs) 
Because the f- physicians at this time didn't either. Even in, in the 1950s, 1940s, physicians didn't really know much about foreskins. <laughs> I mean, hell, they hardly knew anything about women. You think, you know, we're, we're putting much time and energy into our own penises? Like, Yeah, I mean... Okay, so yeah. So in, in, in the UK, so he was an English pediatrician in the UK. And after World War II... This is when the National National Health Service rose up. And as I mentioned before, this is when they were trying to really streamline what was considered necessary procedures. Gardner found that in a group of 200 boys, one in five of them did have an adhesion problem where the foreskin was sticking to the penile gland. But this could be fixed without circumcision. There were other ways of disconnecting that tissue so the foreskin could be not adhered <laughs> could be not connected not connected the the foreskin could be mobile (laughs) yes yeah like i don't know how to put that that's kind of when circumcision in the uk declined after after his paper and after they were trying to streamline that the procedures that were necessary uh they kind of stopped doing circumcisions routinely in in the uk but in the u.s where healthcare was privatized his recommendations gardner's recommendations and his paper were largely ignored the medical establishment just did not care. <laughs> they were like, eh, we're, we're still going to do it. <laughs> we're still going to charge for it. Um, Profit incentive, baby. Yeah. Um, American doctors were so accustomed to thinking of the foreskin as a, a worthless little flap of skin and that it was dirty, um, that it really didn't receive any criticism in the, in the U.S. until the 1960s. And there was a pediatrician named... Noel Pearson. And he... I think I've heard this name before. He said that the conditions that we think of as disorders and diseases of the foreskin are actually normal and they're not even threatening. He kind of he kind of <clears throat> compared the foreskin to the eyelid. Like, it's actually supposed to be this protective shield that protects a very vulnerable gland. <laughs> um <laughs> Which like yeah, the I've never... way you keep referring to the end of the penis as a gland. I'm just looking. I'm looking down. I'll say, and I'm just like a gland. It's called uh, the glands. Look... It's called the glands penis. Look it up. It seriously <laughs> is. It's called the glands penis. I, I believe you. I'm not. I'm not doubting you. You're a penis expert. You know more. You know more, <laughs> more about dicks than me. Now I'm gonna look that up. But it's just like <laughs> a gland, like. <laughs> You know, usually a gland secretes something, and well... What? The penis secretes? Yeah, I know, but, like, I don't really think of... I don't... I was gonna say, I don't really think of my penis as secreting, you know, whatever it secretes. Uh, it just, you know, it just kind of gets everywhere, you know, stuff comes out of it. I don't know. It just, what it what just... do you think secreting is? <laughs> I don't know, Jess. <laughs> I just like I when when I hear you call a penis a gland, and I will, and I'm just like I don't, I don't, I've never thought of my penis as secreting things. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. Like this is not, this is not how I think of my gland and <laughs> how it works. Okay, do you want me to call it the head of the penis from now on? You call it whatever you want. It just it's tickling me. You know, okay, it's t- okay. it, it just tickles me. Okay. Either way, <laughs> this guy thought that. Um, the foreskin had a lot of benefits, actually. It was a protective layer. And in He's babies, not a foreskin apologist. In modern times, there are basically three main reasons physicians recommend removal of the foreskin. And that is because it, it decreases the risk of UTIs. It decreases 
the risk of contracting HIV and it decreases the risk of penile cancer. And we'll get into all three of those in a second. But um, I want to go hard doubt on reduces the risks of HIV. No, it actually it actually it. does. Studies have shown that it actually kind of does. But like, we'll get to that. There, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that like. You if you zip tie it. the end of your foreskin clothes, <laughs> it, uh, it locks in the HIV. No, it really has. It really has um, more to do with the foreskin creates uh, a moist environment that's hospitable to viruses and bacteria. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah, well, that's what that's what it, smegma is. It's like a bunch yeah. of it's a bunch of like you know detritus in your penis. It just it just does. I guess the foreskin does enable like certain microbes to live longer than they otherwise would but <laughs> just thrive yeah but um but we'll get into all of those three things in a second um but this guy actually what like talked about how the foreskin when when a child's a baby the the foreskin actually protects the head of the penis from certain bacteria especially like like waste in their diaper like when they're circumcised that they're actually more vulnerable to bacteria entering their urethra, you know, like the foreskin kind of protects against that. So it's weird that it's kind of weird that one of the reasons we circumcise babies is to protect against UTIs when in fact, like we're removing a, a protective layer <laughs> from their anatomy. Uh, well, you know, what's weird too is that the diaper is a completely like man-made on you know quote-unquote unnatural thing mm -hmm. like if we were just if we were just to be in the wild like babies wouldn't wear diapers they just shit on the ground or something well like infants i'm pretty sure infants also always had diapers something to five thousand years ago what were what were humans using as diapers probably infants? like whatever sort of textile they had to wrap around their baby to keep everything contained. I don't think like babies were just rolling around in their shit. <laughs> Nobody said that. No, but I imagine, you know, uh, 5,000 years ago, a tribal woman's holding her probably naked infant. Maybe it's swaddled in some kind of cloth, but it wasn't, it didn't have like a modern tight diaper that yeah. was like, you know, made to be made to contain the, the baby's, you know, droppings and everything. I'm sure, the, I'm sure they came up with something to contain the baby's. Probably just a swaddling cloth. That's my best bet. Okay, maybe. Who knows? But somebody I, write I just, in. If it you just know. seems weird. It just seems like a weird. <laughs> yeah, somebody please email us. <laughs> we need a tiebreaker. Okay, <laughs> just, and it's weird. He also uh, said that smegma is a normal secretion that keeps the gland moist and lubricated. It's supposed to be there. Um, obviously, you're supposed to clean your penis, but like, it's not a weird thing to have smegma, <laughs> even though like. White people think it's gross. People in the Anglo community perceive it as gross, but it's actually a very natural bo bodily secretion. Okay, it's okay. Like vaginal discharge, you know? This is one of my favorite. So, obviously, also, there is the topic of whether or not the foreskin increases sexual pleasure. And William Morgan, who was a specialist in pulmonary medicine, he declared that to experience sexual intercourse without foreskin was to look at a Renoir colorblind. <laughs> Jesus. Also, <laughs> fuck you. They shouldn't have been Renoir. It should have been Van Gogh. Uh, <laughs> fuck your quote. Tra trash pick of an artist. And that, I mean, that's still a bold claim. How did he study this? Because like, who, <laughs> did he did he do it himself? Did, was he like, I got my foreskin, I'm going to fuck, and then I'm going to fuck without yeah. one and, you know, take, take one for the team. Like, how do we know this? Well, this is the problem 
this is the problem with trying to gauge this is that sexual pleasure is very subjective. So, it, I mean, there's no real way to definitively prove whether or not the foreskin makes sex more pleasurable, but it is proved that the foreskin does have a network of nerves. Uh, okay, so, just hear me out. We take an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, and we have them all get fucked. No, no, no. Just cut that out. I, I was, I was gonna go. I was gonna go somewhere terrible with that, and I'm just not. I'm not even gonna bother. I, I guess. I mean, I think it makes sense that it, sex probably feels a little bit different when you have a foreskin. I mean, there is more nerves. Like, there's more gliding and expanding and contracting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know. But I, I mean, obviously, there's no definitive yes or no on that one. So, uh, what what is the word I'm thinking? I'm you know. Um... The work through the grapevine what's that word i'm trying to like you know the fucking as told by other people's experiences the you just you, it's a word you used earlier anecdotal yeah the anecdotal experience that i've heard is like yeah it feels better but yeah i i i need answers yeah i need i need real I mean, scientific proof uh, yeah there's no scientific proof on that so i can't provide that but like to me it makes sense that like my my personal perception of it is like yeah i don't know i think i think by removing the foreskin you're kind of changing the anatomy of a man and it's weird that this thing the tip of the penis is supposed to be protected by this moist covering that moves up and down and like you remove that and this gland this head of your penis is like just exposed all the time and that's like such a weird thing to me. Like it's supposed to be covered and it's not like you're. It, you're... it would be like a woman's <laughs> clit being out all the time. And, you know, it just it's rubbing up on everything. Like what? It's just like it's supposed to be moist. And like now when you circumcise it, it's always exposed. And it's like it dries out, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, my, my penis is kind of dry. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. It's like, well, I don't know. If, if it does, it, to me, it does feel very unnatural and weird that we do this. <laughs> okay, let me ask you a question, Jess. You, uh, Johnny O, if you could just cover your ears for a second while I ask your daughter this question. Uh, you've had you've had many different lovers. Uh, I assume some of them have been uncircumcised. Uh, have you ever felt a difference between circumcised and uncircumcised? I do have to say, I think. Men who are uncircumcised do have a lot more um, pre-cum or like it, it does feel like they get more lubricated. I'm sure that makes it more pleasurable for them. Uh, I can't say that I myself feel a difference as far as my pleasure goes between circumcised and uncircumcised. But mm-hmm. I do think that like, yeah, like it makes it more, I, I think it makes it more lubricated for them, which makes sex easier and I was kind of hoping to hear that, like, uncircumcised guys feel like they have, like, a ring around their penis and circumcised guys feel more, like, streamlined or something. I was just, no, I was just I hoping really. for, like, a little bit of a difference. But, you know, that's one woman's opinion. You know, we – small sample size. Yeah. Not, not, not completely objective. I don't know. I mean, like, when you're having sex with an uncircumcised penis, the head of the penis is out. You know, it's exposed. Mm-hmm. So it's, like it, – it, I guess it's very similar. So that that's, that's another weird thing is, like – circumcised penises they almost kind of look like they're always erect because they're not always not erect but like the head of the penis is always just there and out you know whereas like it's sort of aggressive it's sort of aggressive it's sort of it's hard to look at it's always out it's always ready to go (laughs) 
it, it's it's it almost it's almost kind of rapey in a way where it's yeah. just like oh he's ready to take you. <laughs> no, that this, this turned into vagina monologues all of a sudden. <laughs> okay, let's um, let's see, let's get into the the reasons why we circumcise today. So the first one I mentioned was UTI UTIs, right? There are studies that show circumcision lowers the risk of UTIs in males. However, UTIs in men are pretty rare. Let's see. Okay. UTIs are most common in male. They, they are actually more common in males than females in the first year of life. But then beyond that, mm. beyond that, it is a very, very rare thing for a man to get a UTI. And that whether or not he's circumcised or uncircumcised, it's not a very common condition in men beyond the first year of life. So, so we, like, I guess the thing to think about that is, is it really worth removing the foreskin to prevent a condition that most men do not get <laughs> throughout their life? You know, like, and, and yeah. it's, it's an easily, and even when uh, babies get it, it's treatable with antibiotics usually in most in most cases so it's like well it's clear it's clearly a case of diminishing returns you know if there's like a 10 percent chance that you're going to get a uti in your life after the age of one as a man but if you take off the foreskin you know that brings the you know that brings the percentage chance down to like seven you know it's like uh was that worth it you right. know is is that three percent the the you know the difference maker right there is that is it <laughs> is that is that a does that represent a uh like a three percent quality in life you know increase like you could everybody can have their own opinions on whether or not it's worth it but in my mind that wouldn't be worth that that alone would not be worth it oh you might have less of a risk of getting something that you're probably not going to get anyways okay well (laughs) i don't know and then potentially cutting your sexual pleasure down by you know over half right and then um the other one is penile cancer and that also is a very, very rare form of cancer. And I guess it, it kind of starts as like skin cancer. So it, it starts as a scaly patch on on your skin, the skin of your penis. And it obviously can mis- uh, meta- metastasize. metastasize. So if it's not treated early, it could turn into a dangerous form of cancer. But it's it's easily treated. So if you catch it, which you should because it's like a scaly patch of skin on you. If you catch it and treat it you're probably going to be fine and it's also it's also a rare form of cancer. So that like that also is like okay, yeah, it lowers the risk of penile cancer but also that's not really a a common form of cancer and it's a highly treatable form of cancer. So and also, you know, typically like people who get cancer have a family history of cancer, so it's like then that then that's when you might make a consideration for a circumcision for that reason. Like, my family does not have a history of cancer whatsoever. Diabetes, heart attack, yeah, absolutely. Not not cancer. So, yeah, so it's just, it's just like, obviously, so many things can cause cancer. Um, like, I, I, one of the analogies somebody made when talking about circumcision, they're like, well, you wouldn't just remove breast tissue from every single girl just because it might prevent them from getting breast cancer, right? And breast cancer, by the way, is much, much more common than penile cancer. But you're not going and being like, you know what? yeah. It's like, I mean, obviously breasts are different because women who have babies want want to breastfeed, but like, so it has more of a function, but like, still, it's like, why would you take, there's nothing else where we really take that type of preventative measure when the thing we're trying to prevent is so, so um, uncommon, you know? 
it's, it, and, it's already a low percentage chance that it's going to happen. And then on top of that, you know, you're taking a preventive medical procedure. It, it's it's like it would it would be like every home in the United States coming with like a nuclear fallout shelter because nukes exist. You know, we're we're doing all these circumcision because penile cancer exists. Yeah. Not that it's common, not that it's likely it exists. And yeah, and then so it says that like let's see, it's like two per one hundred thousand a year, which is very low. So it's like you're going to circumcise all these kids to prevent two. You know, I don't know. And then, um, and then the other thing is that there are countries where men are uncircumcised, like Finland, and they actually have lower rates of penile cancer than the U.S. So Finland and Denmark, they have very low rates of circumcision. Reindeer meat. (laughs) Well, so what they what they drew from this study was that like lifestyle probably has more to do with your chance of contracting penile cancer than does circumcision. So like the lifestyle of the din, the, the Finns and the, the Danes probably are just healthier. <laughs> it has nothing to do with circumcision. You know, like if you actually want to prevent penile cancer, just live a healthier life. <laughs> and Saunas your- and reindeer meat, baby. That's yeah. the way to go. Um, and, oh, and I guess men circumcised after they were infants have about the same rate of penile cancer. So it, it only prevents penile cancer, I guess, if you're circumcised as an infant. And they, they do not know why. They do not know why. <laughs> and then when it comes to HIV and um, STDs, they, they, I guess there is, there is a link between having foreskin and having an easier time contracting an STD. But like also there are other measures you can take from, to protect yourself from S- STDs. So like, I don't know. Is it really necessary to remove the foreskin? Maybe it's more necessary where HIV is like more prevalent. I, I I don't know. I guess that's something you have to weigh whether or not it's worth irreversibly modifying your body. And I, I think maybe with that, that should be a decision that you should make when you're older, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and like, I don't know. Well, I mean, we, we've already hit the nail on the head as to why it's so common in the United States. It is, in my opinion, purely a profit motive. It's an it's an relatively easy relatively non-invasive surgery that you can perform on an infant safely and you can charge money for it and you know you you tell the parents hey you know these are the benefits and these are the things that'll happen if you don't and they don't tell the parents that like oh well penile cancer is only a one percent chance out of a thousand in the united states so you know not that's actually not something you really have to worry about but if you do this it'll it'll possibly prevent it and in the same way that parents get uh, like anti-vaccine parents get scared because they might give their child autism uh people who get circumcisions or people who circumcise their children are scared that if they don't do something they are potentially harming their child and that they're mm-hmm. it's like preying on the instincts of parents who are just you know driven by the their instinct to protect their child at all costs that you know you you yeah you fucking scam an extra 200 bucks out of them yeah you know it's a grift I, everything I, in the united states is a grift well kind of it's because it is just based the origin of it was based on very shaky anecdotal reasoning and uh and then and then it's almost possibly like classist, it's almost racist. like as as we kept doing it we just tried to define like you know certain studies were done it's like well like it might prevent penile cancer and, and uti so like now this is why we're doing it. you know it started because like oh we needed to prevent phimosis and then like it's like well now we know that like the penis matures and like that's not actually a problem so like let's find another reason why we need to keep doing this thing and it just, it just seems like it's based on such shaky <laughs> that sounds like a talking head song the penis matures <laughs> <laughs> but you know like does it it just seems like it's there's not 
it doesn't seem like there's a large amount of concrete evidence to the benefits. <laughs> it just seems like it's like, well, like it might prevent something. So let's just keep doing it. That's what it seems like to me. <laughs> the way traditions develop. Well, we've always done it this way. So we're going to keep doing it this way because this way works. Yeah. And we are not going to change because the risk of change is too high. Speaking of that. So I need to use your words. I need to touch upon, um, the backlash that happened in like the seventies and eighties, because there was a certain backlash, like the generation in the seventies, like, I guess it would be our parents' generation, a little bit older than them. Maybe they have, my my dad was born in like 60 something. So he would have been like 15, 20 in that time period. Yeah. So people of this generation were a little bit more skeptical of the medical establishment than their parents were. So they started like questioning Mm -hmm. things more they didn't have as much trust in authority, right? So they started questioning. One of the things they started questioning was the benefits of circumcision. Um, there is this woman by the name of Marilyn Milo. She was a nurse and she was shocked when she witnessed her first circumcision. She said that the infant sounded like it was in utter pain. It was screaming. She she said it was very clear to her that this baby was in um, a, a, a very like, distressed state yes yes she said it she said it was like it shocked her she said she had never heard a scream like that come from anyone and she she also remembers during that circumcision when that baby was like screaming so loudly she remembers the doctor muttering like there's not even a reason to be doing this (laughs) and it was it was at that moment that she decided to become a a anti-circumcision activist and she created the national organization of circumcision information resource centers uh, oh, that was the other thing. Like before this, it was kind of thought that neonates could not could not uh, experience pain in the way that adults do or that they, you know children's do because their neural pathways haven't been developed enough. They they people thought that infants could not experience pain, and that's not true. Actually, infants can experience a very large amount of pain, and like circumcision probably is very painful on infants. <laughs> And they just kind of do it like, you know, when when you circumcise somebody, you're lifting up, you're separating the foreskin from the penis and you're cutting it like you're tearing the skin from the penis and cutting it like that's obviously painful, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds terrible. Yeah, there was a task force. So this is important. This is like something that I thought was really crazy. The American Academy of Pediatrics, they put together a task force in 1975 to really dig into circumcision and to um, solidify their stance on whether or not this actually is a procedure that needs to be done. And after that task force, they took the stance that education and good hygiene would offer just as many advantages as routine circumcision without the surgical risk. Therefore, circumcision cannot be considered an essential component of total health care. So that was the stance they took in 1975, that it was not a necessary procedure. That was by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so what happened between now and then that ended up getting my foreskin cut off, you know, tell me. Yeah. So then within the intervening years, within the intervening decade, there were a lot of people who were against circumcision, a lot of professionals, a lot of other people who were for it. There was this one guy, this staunch pro-circumcision urologist by the name of Aaron Fink. And in 1988, he he persuaded the California Medical Association to endorse that 
circumcision was a valid public health intervention. And I, I don't know why this guy had so much influence, but he did. He must have just been like a respected doctor. Charismatic, um, handsome, yeah, know, because probably a good public speaker. He was able to convince the um, American Academy of Pediatrics to do another task force that would redecide whether or not, once again, whether or not circumcision was um, a necessary procedure. And the chairman of this task force was another, another very steadfast believer in circumcision. His name was Edgar Schoen. And I, apparently he was a very, um, closed-minded person and he thought he was always probably a prude he thought he was always right and under his direction this task force reversed the prior decision and now they declared that circumcision was again a recommended procedure so basically like these two guys were able to turn <laughs> have them reevaluate and like redecide that it was a, a necessary procedure uh yeah uh i feel like my bodily autonomy has been stolen away from me not by my parents but by like society by yeah. history by fucking racism classism like there's just a, all these myriad of factors that go into it that have decided that nah my foreskin gone taken from me before i could even know what was taken so at the beginning of this podcast you did not feel robbed do you not feel robbed <laughs> That after knowing after learning about the history, yes, I I have I feel I I'm sort of like having like this uh, existential dread that like my future has already been stolen from me before I've had a chance to live it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like it's like just clean your penis. You could clean your penis. <laughs> well, we know that white Christian America would rather tell you cut off your foreskin and never look at a woman rather than like wear a condom and clean your penis. <laughs> yeah. Just like there's other. So yeah, um, I don't know. I know after after doing all this research, I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I would circumcise my baby. Well, you would never have a male baby, so <laughs> I <laughs> the would. wee baby ourselves obviously a woman. <laughs> so really quick, that's that's basically the history of it. But uh, before we wrap up, I did want to kind of just touch upon the risks of the surgery itself because they are. It is a pretty low risk procedure, but it doesn't mean that things can't happen. I'm sure a hot dog's fallen out of its wrapper once or twice. Uh, it has. It has. Okay. Obviously, one complication is bleeding, um, but it's not Obviously. usually it's not usually a problem unless you have it's like a hemophiliac patient, and if mm -hmm. if that patient does have hemophilia, it can be very dangerous and it can actually lead lead to death. So, like, make sure the baby is not hemophiliac. There's another condition called the concealed penis, and this is. When excess skin is removed from the <laughs> shaft, <laughs> I know sealed penis. <laughs> it's basically like the shaft is forced into the fat below the pubic area, I guess, um, and like the abdominal skin covers. It seems very. I don't know. Look it up. Look it up. It's not. Com I don't think it's common, but it's it's something that can happen. Also. The, the physician who's doing the procedure, they need to make sure that they remove the right amount of skin because if you don't, if you remove too much skin, that can be bad. And if you remove too, too little skin, that could also lead to complications. So it is, you have to be precise with it, um, which isn't, you know, like, I guess make sure your physician <laughs> knows what he's doing. <laughs> Measure twice, cut once. Phimosis, let's see. Jesus was a carpenter. He took pride in his work. Physicians, I want you to do the same thing. 
So I guess phimosis actually can result from a bad circumcision even. So the thing that originally doctors were trying to prevent with circumcision can actually happen if the circumcision is not done correctly. And this results when not enough has been removed, I guess. Insufficient outer and inner layers have been removed. And when it heals, it um, leaves scar tissue and the, the opening is too tight to allow it to retract. So it actually, circumcision can actually cause phimosis. It can cause problems with retracting and you would have to do another circumcision in order to correct it. Let's see. God forbid. Uh, obviously, infection is something that's always a risk with any sort of surgery. Uh, urinary retention is something that can happen. I'm guessing that's the opposite of anal retentive. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm guessing that's just like you're not able to pee. Is that? Let's see. It's my best guess. Eurosep- yeah, like, and that can lead to Eurosepsis. Like, obviously, you need to pee. Okay, um, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. So, I mean, like, all of this is kind of rare, but it doesn't mean that there's zero risk. So, it's like, why would you do any risk for a procedure? I, I think that's the thing. It's like, low well, risk. Well, if we're going to weigh the pros and cons, sorry to cut you off. If we're yeah. going to weigh the pros and cons, well, we see that the pros of it are all, like, very low percentage pro upsides. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the cons seem to be low to mid-range percentage upsides. You know, like one you know, 1% chance of infection to 20% chance of urorotentive to urinecrosis. Exactly. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing why this? Why are we yeah. doing this? Like, why why do we need to change? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appeal to white Christian America here. Why do we need to change God's plans for our perfect bodies? You know, like, why, why, do, why should we change anything? Mm-hmm. And I think we need to talk about, too, is that one of the reasons people might continue to do it, even even though the health benefits might be negligible, is that there's a stigma, I think, since most people in this country do get circumcised, like a lot of people do get circumcised. I think a lot of men, a lot of people who are not circumcised feel bad, like they feel like they're weird. I The one person I, t- I talked to that is circumcised, he said he felt very very bad about himself growing up he he didn't even like he he remembers his friends making fun of people being uncircumcised and he felt like a weirdo and he was ashamed of his penis like he he felt like he was had a weird penis basically he was like afraid to have sex because he felt like his penis was weird <laughs> and he felt you like know women what public health initiative we could take that would change america if we just teach kids to stop making people stop making fun of people who are different if we could just convince the children to stop making fun of people who are different we, gotta start we, with we the could children. eliminate so much body dysmorphia from this country yeah but i i mean don't you think i mean that might be a reason why parents make the decision to circumcise their sons because they might think well all of his friends are going to be circumcised everybody's circumcised our son has to be circumcised too, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hard disagree with that line of logic. I just don't think that's that's anything close to what most people making this decision are gonna. You don't that, think the, so? The reason they're gonna come to, I really I, don't. I do, I do. I think that it's it's just something. I honestly don't think people think very deeply about this. I think, I think that they're like, oh well, this is I'm circumcised. My father's circumcised. Everybody I know circumcised. I guess I'm going to circumcise my son too. You know, like I just think, I think that's as deep as it goes a lot of the time. Just like, oh, this is just oh, what yeah. we do. I, I agree with you there, but I don't, yeah. I don't think that then transitions into like, well, all his friends are going to be circumcised. Like, I don't, 
I don't know about that. I don't know. You don't think so? <laughs> the way you stated it. No, I think most people go follow the train of logic that you just presented. The, well, my dad was circumcised, I'm assuming. I'm circumcised, I know. It's like, well, why wouldn't I get my son circumcised? We're all doing it. It can't be that bad. That's yeah, that's what it. I mean. They like, everybody's doing tradition. it. Everybody's doing it. All the other kids are going to be circumcised. Everybody around you is going to be circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're thinking that all the other kids are going to be circumcised. Little boys, most little boys aren't just showing off their dicks to each other. We're much more interested in seeing what little girls have. No, so I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Ew, gross. Well, you're also fucking like nine, so it's not that weird. Nine? Yeah, like, you know, little boys, little girls, you know, nine, ten years old, you know, the kids are all the same age. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in seeing my friend's penises. No, I'm not that saying that age. you're sure. I'm just saying. Well, you were saying you were, they're going to be circumcised. They're all going to yeah. see it or talk about it. Like, so as like, you grow you up, pres- people have conversations about genitals. <laughs> I'm not saying that everybody's running around with their dicks out, but like, <laughs> you've never, you've never that. heard a teenage boy make a joke about a, a cer- an uncircumcised penis. You've never heard jokes made about uncircumcised penises. I have. No, I, 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 and I can promise you, I had a, I had a pretty good amount of teenage boyfriends and I've, we never, we never joked about uncircumcised penises. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's, you know, like different cultural trends in different parts of the United States. But that's, maybe. that's a whole different subject. I, <laughs> We 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 would joke about man, I'm trying to remember. We would just make like really off color, raunchy jokes, but it would never be like about uncircumcised dicks or like making fun of like something different. It would be like, oh, uh, one time I farted so loud I shit my pants. <laughs> oh yeah, I think all, I think yeah, like all boys make jokes about that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, but I I can I can tell you pretty certainly that we never we never made fun of uncircumcised penises. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people do. Agreed I think I even remember a joke in Sex in the Sex in the City about a circumcised uncircumcised penises. Well, that's the that's the kind of demographic that would have a lot of experiences with a wider range of penises that could make that joke and like you make the comparisons. But here, and here's also the thing, Jess. You uh, earlier, I didn't. I told you I didn't even find out what it, what circumcision was or that my penis was circumcised. Yeah. Until I was like ten or eleven or something. Yeah. And then it was only that one time. So it's one of it's one of these ideas that like just wasn't even in my head mm-hmm. that there were different penises. Yeah. I just assumed all penises looked the same. Yeah. So I don't know. It's 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 a completely it's a completely unrelated tangent. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This this is this is how me and Jess's conversations go. She'll she will make one claim that I just I disagree with, and we're just gonna go in on that for the next <laughs> hour. And it's it is a completely like it's not. It's not like I'm not interested in the conversation, but it's a completely uh, trivial conversation. Mm-hmm. It'll, the, the, it ultimately amounts to a lot of like us blowing hot air at each other and being like, well, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I love getting into arguments with you. It was, it was, <laughs> that was 90% of our relationship. <laughs> Just arguing about yeah. the most completely mundane things. <laughs> Just these inconsequential, like, you know, no matter who's right, or, or, or it doesn't matter because it, you know, <laughs> means nothing to either of us, really. All right. Well, I gotta wrap this up because I would, I've gotta go walk Harpy. Okay. Well, give Harper my best. And I need to do some other things. So. <laughs> oh, some other things. Secretive, huh? secretive. Things. Oh, are those other things? Are those other things and penis related? Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fun. Until next time. This has been modified. Later. Later. <laughs>